Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the humble spud, one of the finest foodstuffs on the planet in my view. Oh, jeez, I bloody love a bag of chips, I do. Uh, The potato is a vegetable that has had a surprisingly powerful impact on world history, however. It's not just a... you know, a, a delicious vegetable that you can, uh, well, you can do everything, but boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew, you can do, you know, I mean, everyone knows the potato is, a, it's a versatile, it's a filling, and it's a delicious bit of tucker. I'd be very bloody surprised if anyone listening to this is, has never eaten potato in some, you know, in some form or another. It's it's the fourth most abundant, or perhaps the fifth most abundant food crop in the world after corn, wheat, uh, and rice, and maybe cane sugar, I'm not sure uh, exactly where it stacks up there. Um, and as I say, it goes, goes in, uh, in just about anything. Thing. Um, but what you might not know, however, about the potato is the it's 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 just a, it's amazing story. The amazing story of this innocuous little vegetable, how it went from being grown on uh, on the Andean mountainsides for thousands of years to being one of the central forces behind Europe's political dominance in the closing years of the second millennium. It, it is really staggering to learn about. So special thanks go to alert listener Anna, uh, both for suggesting this uh, as a topic and for making my job much easier by submitting some very useful reading material as well. So thanks so much, Anna. Good on you, mate. Bloody legend. And uh, thanks also go to all the listeners who got in touch uh, with me to say that they like the episode on the English longbow, uh, which actually encouraged me uh, to make another episode about a thing rather than, you know, a person or an event like like we usually cover here. I mean, honestly, I didn't, you know, it didn't take me too much persuading. I, I bloody love, I love potatoes. Uh, you know, I don't have a particularly advanced palate and uh, and potatoes are right up there with, you know, pizza and fried chicken on my list of all-time favourite foods. So, uh, but look, it really was fascinating to read about this vegetable and, and learn, uh, you know, about how strongly and how profoundly it, it has changed the history, changed the history of our entire civilization, and, uh, and particularly the history of Europe. And, you know, look, I'm not trying to get stuck into the old, you know, European history as world history history trope, but, but, but as I say, Europe owes a lot of its modern political power uh, and its dominant position today in world affairs to the humble potato. And uh, so, yeah, look, let, let's get to it here. Let's learn all about the potato, where it came from, where it went, and and what effects uh, it had on its way to becoming the ultimate snack food. We're going all the way back, all the way back to 2500 BCE here, uh, to what is a modern-day coastal Peru, where we have reliable archaeological uh, evidence of potatoes having been domesticated and cultivated and of course eaten by ancient Andean civilizations so these are these are uh, you know civilizations living on, on the along the, the the Andes the mountain range there um, we actually may be going way back f- f- way further than this of course way further back than uh, 2500 BCE uh, potatoes may have been domesticated as early as 8000 BCE uh, but given they don't have you know Bones, luckily, I guess you know. I wouldn't enjoy eating potato half as much if it had bones. Um, very verifying claims like this, uh, you know, archaeologically speaking, are very difficult. Plant matter obviously is a little harder for archaeologists to investigate properly, as it, you know, of course, decays to, you know, more or less nothing uh, very swiftly indeed in comparison to you know bones and and, and rocks and minerals and all sorts of other stuff there like that. Uh, but still, our best guess is that uh, Andean people were were growing and eating potatoes for thousands and thousands of years 
Um, and with bloody good reason too, because let's have a quick chat about some of the inherent positives of the potato. Uh, potatoes obviously grow underground, everyone, everyone knows this, uh, rather than above ground, something like something like corn or wheat. Um, and uh, as a result, there's a much higher limit uh, to their productivity. If a sheaf of wheat is too productive, right, gets too heavy, the stalk underneath it will collapse under the weight and the sheaf will obviously be lost. A potato, however, can grow and grow and grow underground, no worries at all. According to Guinness World Records, the heaviest potato ever grown was uh, was grown by a bloke named Peter Glazebrook in 2011, uh, weighing just under five kilos, which, uh, oh, oh, sorry, hang on, I should, I should probably be a bit more specific. The potato. Uh, weighed just under five kilos, not the bloke. Although that would also be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? A five kilogram bloke growing an enormous big potato. I mean, you'd love to see that. Anyway, um, growing underground, potatoes growing underground also keeps them safer in times of warfare and strife, right? Because raiders can torch fields or, you know, pillage grain stores, uh, whatever else. But potatoes are much safer hiding away underground. So that, you know, in times of, you know, when your crops are potentially at risk, having a, a, having a foodstuff that, that is safe buried under the earth is, is much better if you're, you know, again, if pillagers are coming through or whatever else they're like that. Um, they're also very filling. They're relatively nutritious, although they, you know, they're about 79% water and when you cook them, they lose most of their vitamin content. But still, no worries. They kept many of the ancient civilizations of South America, uh, in, in, in the northwest of South America at least, well-fed for thousands and thousands of years, um, uh, including, of course, most notably the mighty Inca Empire, which was spread across the, uh, across the Pacific coast of South America along the western side of the Andes mountain range, up uh, more, more towards the northwest there. And uh, potatoes, uh, they were grown throughout this area for millennia. They were cooked and eaten in all sorts of ways. They were boiled and mashed and baked and dried, fermented, and most famously, of course, anyone who's visited the region may be aware of the dish called chunyo. Uh, to make chunyo, uh, potatoes are left, to, or they were left out to freeze overnight, uh, then thawed when the sun came up, and then frozen again, and then thawed again over and over over a couple of days. They then get laid out on the ground and crushed underfoot, a bit like, you know, grapes being made into wine, until any remaining moisture was, uh, was squeezed out of them. And they then either get washed to make white chunyo or sun-dried to make black chunyo. And the result apparently is something that vaguely resem- uh, resembles the Italian gnocchi, although that's probably not, you know, an exact sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know, comparison. But that, that's the closest I could come there with it. I've never, I've never tried it. I'd love to try it, actually. I'm not very experimental with new foods, but chunyo does sound pretty good. Uh, it does, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds bloody delicious. But uh, the real advantage of chunyo... Uh, was that uh, in a time without refrigeration, it kept for years and years and years. It was it was very uh, it was very hardy, uh, and it was also as a result the perfect foodstuff for army rations uh, and could be stockpiled to protect people from uh, bad or failed harvests, famine, you know that sort of thing. So very very useful food. And uh, I, I will point out as well uh, before we move on too much further, the potatoes back then uh, w- were not what you'd expect them to be. Uh, you know, based on they're very different from the spuds that we have today. They came in all all shapes and sizes and, and colours and. You know, we'll talk about that a little bit further later on. Uh, you know, the common potato looks to looks very different today, and we'll talk we'll talk about that. Uh, you know, as the episode progresses, we've mucked around with breeding plants so much over the centuries. We've changed how how you know so many of them look and taste. We've changed this enormously. I mean, carrots were commonly yellow or purple before we had our way with them. Although you shouldn't believe that there are stories about how uh, the Dutch bred orange carrots to honour William of Orange. That's just a myth. That's not true. But uh, you know, obviously, common carrots today are, are orange rather than uh, than than yellow or purple. Anyway. 
The long and the short of it was that ancient Andean civilizations, they were into potatoes way before it was cool, a long, long time before it was cool, and it wasn't until the 16th century that they began to spread to the wider world. And this began, of course, as part of the Columbian Exchange. Now, you may have heard of this before, the Columbian Exchange, it's the name given to uh, the transfer of uh, just uh, just about everything, really, uh, between what are sometimes called the old world and the new world. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the old world being on the the, uh, on the eastern side of the Atlantic and uh, the New World being on the west of it. Basically, you know, Europe and Africa on in the Old World and uh, the Americas in the New World uh, during the Age of Discovery. You know, people are cutting about uh, you know, across, across the oceans and ships, whatever else. And uh, the Columbian Exchange obviously involved uh, people, technology, plants, animals, cultures, ideas, and, of course, you know, very, very sadly, diseases as well. Uh, it was a monumental event in world history and, of course, named after Christopher Columbus, who uh, remains... Perhaps one of the most overrated figures in world history, thank you principally to the United States, making him into this mythical, larger-than-life hero when they wanted to move away from their largely English heritage and, and heroes in the period around and, uh, and after the, uh, the American Revolution. That's another story. Uh, and largely, the Colombian Exchange, to, for the most part, is also another story. It doesn't... Hu- I mean, it comes into this uh, this episode as far as uh, potatoes are concerned, obviously. But there's a lot of other a lot of other stuff uh, going. A lot of other stuff happened during the time of the Colombian Exchange. Some of it good, some of it bad, some of it e- extremely bad, as I'm sure you're aware. We're not going to go too deep on it all today. You know, there's way too much to get across. But uh, I guess we can go... You know, briefly, the Colombian Exchange, it saw all sorts of things introduced to both sides of the Atlantic. Europeans introduced animals such as horses, cows, chickens, and bees. Uh, food such as citruses, grapes, and, and bananas, and uh, you know diseases such as smallpox. Not very bloody nice at all. And uh, the Americas introduced all sorts of things to uh, to you know to the other side of the, uh, of the Atlantic too. Uh, animals such as llamas and parrots and turkeys. Food such as avocado, cocoa, and of course the potato and uh, syphilis is also thought to have come from the Americas. Although well, this, this is disputed, as it may have already existed on the other side of the Atlantic uh, well before the, uh, the Columbian Exchange. Uh, anyway, one of the key differences, anyway, between the potato and syphilis is that we are uh, much more certain <laughs> that the potato originated in the Americas. And uh, when Spanish conquistadors, led by a bloke named Francisco Pizarro, came across the locals eating them in the 1530s during the invasion of Peru, they snagged some for themselves. This was in addition to uh, Pizarro be, uh, being involved in a bunch of other stuff. As I say, the, the Spanish conquest of uh, Peru is probably what he's best known for, but also the foundation of the city of Lima and uh, also executing an Incan emperor, uh, Atahualpa, despite the Incans paying the requested ransom for their emperor. The story goes that after being captured, Atahualpa... Uh, negotiated a ransom for himself by saying that he would fill the room in which he was imprisoned with gold to as high as he could reach. It was 6.7 metres long, 5.2 metres wide, and Atahualpa could reach as high as 2.75 metres, apparently. Uh, the ransom room, it's very famous. You can you can go and look it up there. And Pizarro agreed, uh, uh, to, agreed to these terms, and so the Incans then delivered almost 100 cubic metres of gold to the Spanish, plus a bunch more silver. Uh, Almost all of it was melted down into ingots, and today it would be worth 500 million US dollars. Half a billion dollars was the ransom for this bloke. Um, And even after getting all this gold delivered, Pizarro still bloody executed him. And so it really does seem like that he was a bit of a nasty bugger, I reckon. Anyway, it was he 
who led the Spaniards into Peru and came across the indigenous populations eating these strange vegetables that they'd dug out of the ground. And at first, the Spanish didn't want anything to do with the potato. They, uh, they, they, they looked at it and, you know, considered it well beneath them, refused to eat it. Eventually, however, and with a fair bit of reluctance, these conquistadors uh, also began to start eating potatoes, just like the native Peruvians were doing. And news of this new food uh, began to spread, uh, you know, slowly to begin with, but then faster and faster. Uh, but then, ultimately, before, you know, after a couple of years had passed, uh, the holds of the Spanish ships that were returning across the Atlantic, groaning with the weight of all the stolen and pillaged gold, uh, they also, along with the gold, brought with them the humble potato plant. The very earliest written record uh, of this taking place that survives today dates all the way back to 1567, with potatoes being sold to merchants in Antwerp. And uh, farmers over in South America, you know, they grew the they grew the crop very readily, and a lot of potatoes were being shifted across the Atlantic back to Europe, uh, where it was introduced to Spain, Italy, England, Ireland, the Low Countries, other places here and there as well. However, in most places, just as it had been with Pizarro and and his Spaniards in Peru. People were very suspicious of this new food and very slow to adopt it. It was mainly used as animal fodder in many places in Europe for a long, long time to come, centuries to come here, because, uh, you know, (laughs) there was some very, I mean, all too familiar suspicion of the unfamiliar and, and the foreign. I mean, you know... Not that I can talk. I hardly ever try new food, to be honest. And and as you know, as a result of this uh, of this of this wary attitude, uh, people initially shunned the potato uh, very strongly indeed. They were nicknamed the Devil's Apples uh, because they grew underground, and uh, rumours about them flew around like crazy. Some said that uh, they were an aphrodisiac. Some said that they caused fevers. There were theories that it could even cause leprosy. But my favourite is that people believed that potatoes made you fart like a racehorse, uh, which, I mean, as far as, it is, as far as I'm concerned, at least, that definitely would have made me want to eat more potatoes, not less, uh, if that were actually true. But uh, the long and the short of it was, of course, that people in Europe uh, were very, very slow, very bloody slow on the uptake of the adoption of the potato. Uh, the, you know, this amazing new food stuff uh, went largely ignored, took a long time for it to catch on, apart from, again, being, uh, being fed to, you know, pigs and the like there. Suspicion of this weird new food, again, a suspicion that I can definitely relate to, uh, was slowly weakened. It slowly was uh, was weakened and ultimately overcome by something uh, much more powerful, much more primally human than even paranoid xenophobia, an empty stomach. I opened the episode by talking about how the potato changed the course of European history, and here is why. Famine. For centuries... Europe had relied on planting and harvesting crops, principally wheat, to feed its people, and these crops weren't always guaranteed to come to harvest, Uh, you know, and even if they did, there wasn't necessarily enough to go around. Crops could fail because of bad weather, they could be destroyed or stolen by raiders, burnt or trampled or pillaged by invading armies, no crops were a safe bet. The potato, however, was immune to much of these dangers as it grew underground, and additionally, of course, potatoes are bulky and filling, Eventually, all these starving peasants, they overcame their fear of, you know, blasting hole in their knickers with thunderous farts and decide that a full belly was worth the risk of a brass band blowing out of your bum. It really is astonishing to realise just how long it took for the potato to catch on, especially when we consider when you go back to this period in European history, living standards in Europe were a 
abysmal. They were atrocious. There was not enough food to go around. People are living in poverty and squalor, in dirt and in filth. I mean, hunter-gatherer tribes in other parts of the world, you know, in the Amazon, parts of Africa, that sort of thing, they regularly had better food. They had fuller bellies than the people, you know, than peasantry living in Europe because of how poor the living standards of, uh, you know, Middle Ages Europe or even Renaissance into the modern era Europe were. People, you know, we sort of look at it now because Europe is, you know, one of the most developed places on earth and kind of assume that it's always been like that. But this is not the case because at these times, Europe was... A, a real backwater in in many in in many senses. Uh, it really was, and the potato actually came along at the perfect time to start to uh, to start to change that. And this change was was largely wrought by the Spanish too, because obviously you know they've been the ones to have brought who, who brought the the potato back to Europe. But they also started to use it to feed their armies, right? So Spanish soldiers are cutting about Europe. Obviously, the, the Spanish Empire at this point is, uh, you know, has, has got vast holdings of land, not just around the world, but across continental Europe as well. We've touched upon that in, in some other episodes. And, uh, you know, now there are these well-fed Spanish soldiers cutting about Europe, uh, eating this new food from, uh, from South America. And, you know underfed peasants see these soldiers uh, going around with full bellies and they start to sit up and take notice. Potatoes were initially at least relatively hardy, relatively easy to grow, and they could be sown amongst other plants in a small herb garden or the like. You know, even if they weren't, uh, you know, there weren't great big fields full of potatoes, peasants were actually able to uh, plant them in their own backyards and in some cases even subsist off them here. And because you didn't even need seeds for potatoes, you just chop one up and plant it and, you know, it would sprout into new plants just like magic. This was enormous this was an enormously attractive proposition for uh for, for landless labourers, peasants who were having to work on other people's land, harvest other people's crops, could now feed themselves out of their own backyard with the potato. And there were strict laws in some places about crop rotations, fallow fields and all the rest of it. So having a foodstuff you could grow again in your backyard made a huge difference, a huge difference for starving peasants here. Because it not only improved their overall health and nutrition because they were actually, you know, eating a reasonable amount of food a day, it made them much more productive as workers. And this this sort of was the beginning of an enormous economic shift in uh, in the labour market of Europe, and again, spurred on uh, uh, by the potato. Of course, many people still remain suspicious of the plant and refuse to to plant it amongst you know all the all the other herbs and other plants in in their in their gardens there in case it spread its poison to them. But many others finally you know wisened up to the potato and enjoyed much fuller bellies uh, for themselves and their families there. And uh, into the 17th and 18th centuries, I mean, it really, it really did take that long. Uh, it really did take that long, years and years and years. It wasn't just the, you know, the, the common sense of, of starving peasants that helped the potato come, become the, the, the staple that it is today. Many famous people have been associated with helping to spread the good word of the potato. Uh, the English privateer, Sir Francis Drake, who brought them back from his voyages. The French philosopher, Denis Diderot, wrote about them. Uh, he was actually one of the people who, uh, who thought they made you fart. And, uh, and of course, the Prussian king 
Frederick the Great is said to have been very, very keen on potatoes indeed. How far old mate Fritz actually went with popularising the spud uh, throughout his kingdom is, is still a matter of much debate, but uh, today, even today, he still has the nickname Kartoffelkönig, which means potato king, and uh, people still actually leave potatoes on his grave in, in Potsdam outside the palace he built there by way of tribute. The bloke was definitely a fan of the, of the potato. He definitely did a lot to fight his people's uh, suspicion of the vegetable uh, because, of, I mean, very simply, he just wanted them to not die of starvation. There were constant battles with famine throughout Prussia, and uh, he was, you know, very keen to give people access to a more reliable foodstuff. So much so, in fact, that in 1756, he actually issued the Kartoffelbefehl, uh, or Potato Command, that ordered uh, the immediate cultivation of potato crops throughout Prussia. Uh, and obviously, you know, this helped to popularise and, and, and grow the potato uh, throughout, you know, further, further and further throughout Europe. But perhaps the bloke most responsible for the final victory of the potato in the hearts and minds of, uh, of the European common folk was a French fella by the name of Antoine Augustin Parmentier, right? Now, this bloke is perhaps the real hero of our story today because it's his pioneering work that doubtlessly led to the enormous success of the potato in the years to come. Now, Parmentier, he had been, he'd been a pharmacist for the French army during the Seven Years' War and, uh, you know, fighting against Frederick the Great's Prussia. And uh, at one point, or at several points perhaps, he may have actually been uh, taken prisoner more than once, but he was, ta- he was indeed captured and taken prisoner by the Prussians. And while in prison, he was fed little else than, you guessed it, potatoes, thanks to how keen Fritz was on growing them, of course. So while a Prussian prisoner, he got his fill of, uh, of the humble spud. And for the most part at this stage, the French still saw potatoes as little more than animal fodder. It was basically pig food. Uh, growing them for human consumption was actually outlawed in France uh, well into the 1770s, again, due to this whole thing, you know, the rumours about leprosy. Anyway, Parmentier, he's there in prison, he's eating potatoes, and after he's released, he says to himself, I reckon those Prussians, I reckon those, those, those crafty Prussians, they're onto, a, they're onto a real winner here. I'm going to go back and put potatoes on the menu in France. You know, I'm sick of eating bloody frogs and snails and mouldy cheese and bits of horse. I'd love a bloody potato uh, back at home in, uh, in me native France there. So back in France, he worked for years doing all sorts of groundbreaking, pioneering nutritional studies to prove that the potato was a worthy foodstuff. Uh, But obviously that's very boring, and so let's instead focus on the ridiculous publicity stunts that he pulled off instead to make the potato catch on. I mean, that kind of proves his point, doesn't it? He did all this research about the potato, but that's not what convinces people. You know, they don't want the boring, the facts and the figures and all that sort of stuff. It was instead the secret plans and clever tricks that Parmentier pulled out to uh, to cunningly bring people on side. And, uh, you know, to be honest, he, he... he chose a good time to do it too. Uh, in 1775, King Louis XVI deregulated grain prices, which proved to be a very foolish move indeed, because the price of bread shot through the roof. People were starving. There was a period of great civil unrest known as the the Flower Wars, and uh, here's this bloke now coming along and pushing a new kind of food, saying that if everyone would just calm down and eat these bloody potatoes, there wouldn't be an issue, mate. 
But again, rather than just, you know, boring speeches and politicking and whatever else, Parmentier actually had quite a few tricks up his sleeve in order to, uh, to get people on side. He presented Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette with potato flowers. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the potato flower. They're actually very pretty indeed. Um, uh, which Louis wore in his buttonhole and Marie Antoinette wore in her hair. Moves that now, of course, the entire French aristocracy very quickly copied creating a demand for the plants. That was very clever, very, you know, very a genius move there. But his real masterstroke was something that is so ridiculous, it sounds made up. This really does sound like it was made up, but from everything that I read, it's absolutely true. Check this out. Unbelievable. Parmentia knew that there were thousands of poor, underfed people cutting about, desperate for their next meal, you know, grain shortages and the price of bread uh, through the roof here. Lots and lots of people with rumbly tumblies there. And so this gives him a little idea. It's unclear exactly where this happened. It either happened outside of Paris or outside of Lyon. But what he did was this. He made a great big show of planting potatoes in a large patch, right, uh, and then hired armed guards to watch over the patch during the day. Again, trying to make a big show of how valuable these plants were and, you know, how, how important it was to keep them safe from thieves. But then at night, the guards withdrew. They left the plant, the, the, all these plants, this, uh, this big patch of potatoes, they left it completely undefended from thieves. And people sensing the moment, sensing their chance had come, they then broke into the patch, thinking, again, that this was their chance to, the, the, the guards were gone, they could now go in and nick these, these, valuable, uh, these valuable plants, and so they go in, and they start racking these potatoes, clawing them out of the ground, and scarpering with them. I mean, Parmenti then gets up in the morning and goes, oh, oh, no, oh, no, all these bloody people have stolen my potatoes, oh, isn't this terrible, I have to bury another lot of them. And so he'd bury another, another lot of them under the, you know, under the, uh, under the watch of these guards there. The guards would then go away at night, and sure enough, these thieves had come back, steal all the potato plants once again. They assumed... Because the guards had been posted, that whatever they were guarding was obviously must be, it must be enormously valuable, and therefore when the guards nicked off, they took advantage and stole these precious spuds. But here's the thing. Parmentier wanted people to steal the potatoes. He knew that they only that they would only if he made them think that they were getting away with something. A 200 IQ play from Armentia there, absolute pro-gamer move. People nicking these potato plants, planting them, eating the spuds, right, just because they thought they were getting away with something. They're bloody brilliant. Talk about taking advantage of human nature. Un unbelievably smart stuff from Parmentier there. And, of course, people go away now. They've got full bellies. They're talking about the potato. They tell their mates <laughs> they've got... <laughs> <laughs> They've got a, a very poorly guarded patch of land with Parmentia, you know, asking the guards to come away from it uh, so people could continue to, to steal the spud. So this, this helped greatly in actually propagating the, the, the plant throughout France as well. So by the time the 19th century rolls around, potatoes have become a staple crop of most of Europe. They are single-handedly combating the famines and the food shortages that had plagued the continent for centuries. Europe's rise to a position of complete political dominance around the globe at this time is not a coincidence. There are powerful nations such as Britain, France, Prussia, all the rest of them, you know, they are no longer struggling to keep their people fed and instead can now focus their energies on other things, like, for example, 
colonising much, you know, much of the rest of the world and going to war with one another. So, you know, with all that nasty business to one side for, for the moment, of course, you know, again, some of these consequences aren't necessarily positive for a lot of people around the globe there. But it's safe to say, nonetheless, that the rise of the potato as a reliable and abundant foodstuff for most of the European working classes was a total game changer. A well-fed population is a productive population, and the economic and political power of these European great powers exploded now that they weren't struggling, you know, through famines and bread shortages and the unrest and the riots that came with such things. Europe's food supply essentially doubled with the, uh, with the, you know, with the, the rise of the potato. And the importance of that really cannot be overstated. Population growth flourished, labour markets boomed, and famines were a thing of the past as these well-fed nations embraced the Industrial Revolution and launched themselves into the future. The potato really did underpin the Industrial Revolution, particularly in Britain, where an increasingly urbanised population was still able to feed itself now from its backyard by growing potatoes in small patches out of, you know, out of the back of their tenement buildings. All of a sudden, landless labourers were feeding themselves, taking the strain off of rural agriculture and also providing a steady stream of labour for urban industry. And this is all thanks to the potato, which has come a long, long way from the Peruvian mountainsides to the backyards of Mancunian tenements. However, I have lied to you, dear listener. I have lied to you. As many of you have probably realised, your eyebrows may have shot up at a sentence I said uh, a few minutes ago there, because, of course, famine was not a thing of the past for Europe, even after the potato, uh, you know, became a staple foodstuff. While it, uh, while famine was done away with for, you know, a good while, as people uh, adopted and embraced the potato, it is unfortunately... It's time to head into a darker chapter of the history of the spud, one that you're probably already at least a little familiar with here. Because in popularising the potato as they did, people like Parmentier were actually sowing the... Well, no, not the seeds. Uh, not, not the seeds at all. Potato don't have seeds. They were, they were sowing the potato chunks of their own downfall. Because when you plant a piece of potato... It grows in a different way to how a plant would, uh, would, would normally grow from a seed. What it does, in effect, is actually clone itself. Now, you know, obviously I'm not a geneticist, I'm hardly even a historian, but I know that genetic diversity is enormously important to the sustainability of any given species. And now, after hundreds of years of planting and replanting clones of the same couple of spuds that were first brought back from the Americas, Europe has sown thousands upon thousands of square kilometres with genetically identical potatoes. Remember I talked about how the potatoes that, you know, the, 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 the people were eating back in, you know, in the Andean civilizations in ancient times looked very different to the potatoes we have today? That's because there were so many different varieties. Up to 5,000 different varieties of potatoes have already been catalogued today. And there were so many different strains and types and flavours and all sorts of, you know, and again, in short, an enormous amount of genetic diversity amongst the stocks of the potatoes that were being grown in what is today modern-day Peru. But it's only a tiny fraction of the various types of potato grown in South America that were brought back by the Spanish to Europe. And as a result, there is 
very little genetic diversity in, in potato crops across Europe in the 19th century. Why is this a problem, however, you may be asking? If an entire species shares a more or less identical genetic makeup, they share all the strengths and weaknesses that come with that genetic makeup. Weaknesses, for example, to a particular type of disease. If one plant is vulnerable to it, all of them are. And doubtless you've heard of the potato blight that devastated Europe in the mid-1840s, the Great Potato Failure, it's sometimes called, and it ravaged potato crops uh, throughout the continent and, of course, its surrounds. A type of mould called uh, Phytoptora infestans, uh, which roughly translates as vexing plant killer, uh, tore through Europe, infecting crops everywhere in the Low Countries, Scandinavia, France, the German-speaking world, Spain, Scotland, and, of course, most devastatingly, Ireland. It left potatoes in a, in a, a rancid, mushy mess that was completely inedible. And uh, while around uh, 50,000 people died of starvation in Belgium and more than 40,000 perished in Prussia and uh, tens of thousands in other places uh, uh, across Europe, nowhere was the potato blight more deadly and more ruinous, of course, than in Ireland. Because Ireland at this point in its history, Ireland was ruled by the British as part of the United Kingdom, and in the grand tradition of the English at the top of the food chain, they uh, generally treated the Irish like dirt. Uh, poverty was widespread, the poor were ruthlessly oppressed and exploited by wealthy landowners, they were paid a pittance and expected to work uh, very, very hard indeed. And uh, most Irish workers, uh, as a result of this poverty, uh, subsisted solely on potatoes for about 40%, check this out, this is unbelievable, right? For about 40% of the Irish population in the 1840s, potatoes were the only solid food they ate, full stop. Nearly half of Ireland is only eating potatoes. And so when the blight hit Europe, the lower classes in other countries, of course, they have to turn to alternative foodstuffs. They have to start eating, you know, relying on bread and whatever else there like this. But in Ireland... There was no other alternative. As I say, 40% of people, they've only got potatoes. And these poor, poor people, they dropped like flies. If they didn't die of starvation, they died of disease brought on by being so weak and vulnerable due, due to the, you know, the total lack of food. It's estimated that between uh, 1841 and 1851, one million Irish people perished because of the potato blight. And further than that, well over a million left in search for a better future, the vast majority of them are leaving to North America and specifically to the United States. Emigra mass emigration saw countless scores of people boarding fleets of ships and leaving Ireland behind, never to return. I mean, so many people left Ireland for the United States that by 1850, a quarter of the populations of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia were Irish immigrants. This led to rampant anti-Irish sentiment, of course, the, the cruel fate suffered by, by immigrants uh, across the centuries, and the phrase, no Irish need apply, became commonly included in job advertisements at the time, although, although today uh, many Americans wear their Irish heritage uh, with great pride. And uh, I, I will say, for any Americans, you know, who do this that might be listening, 
it makes actual Irish people cringe so hard that their teeth shatter when you do this. I mean, it's the same for Americans who claim to be uh, to claim to be Scotch. Uh, firstly, you're Scottish, not Scotch, and secondly, you're not Scottish, you're American. Like, it, it, it's fine to be proud of your heritage. I mean, you know, my grandma was Irish, but I would never cut about saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Irish. I mean, you, I mean, just so you don't embarrass yourself again, know that when you do this, uh, dear American, Irish people are laughing at you behind your back for being so typically and so obnoxiously American. Uh, anyway, the potato giveth and the potato taketh away. And after helping to propel Europe to the forefront of international political power, this blight killed a staggering number of people and led to widespread emigration from Ireland, as I said. But all these numbers and percentages we've talked about, they're kind of easy to gloss over. So let me put this another way, in a way that may uh, sort of illustrate just how big a deal this was. In 1841, Ireland's population was a little under 8.2 million people. Today, 180 years later, the population of the entire island of Ireland is just over six and a half million. In other words, the potato blight was so devastating for Ireland that even after almost two centuries, it hasn't fully recovered. It didn't even start trending upwards until the 1940s. For a hundred years, Ireland's population continued to decrease due to the potato blight. And of course, a range of other things as well, but principally, of course, this great potato famine. And as late as the 1960s, the Irish population was still less than half of what it had been before the blight. And again, today, it still hasn't recovered to pre-blight numbers. Anyway, the potato's impact on the history of our civilization can't really be overstated. Before the potato arrived in Europe, the average European peasant, as I said, ate less than, you know, people living in hunter-gatherer societies and other places around the world. And, and the living standards of, European, of the European lower classes were abysmal. People living in poverty and squalor and perpetual hunger. European governments struggled to feed their people, let alone, you know, advance the cause of human civilization. And uh, the potato, and, and corn in fairness, you know, you know to, a, to a slightly lesser extent, the potato, it changed that dynamic entirely. Providing an abundant food supply to the population of Europe directly led to the rise of Europe as the, the, the seat of global political power throughout the 19th century and, of course, the Industrial Revolution and the global colonialism that came with it, both of which, for all the horrors that they wrought along the way, directly led to a rise in living standards for billions and billions of people around the world. Today, you wouldn't think twice, you know, before grabbing a bag of chips off the supermarket shelf or, you know, in enjoying a side of chips with your chicken parmigiana at the pub. But this wonderful, versatile food, the humble potato, it has fueled and propelled our species into the modern era, into a world of aeroplanes and smartphones. Quite simply, the world would not be what it is today without the potato. And I'm not saying this because I think that European history is world history. Far from it. I'm saying that because without the potato, 
that sentence wouldn't even make sense. Europe would still be the starving, impoverished backwater that it was before the potato fed its millions and enabled it to rule and dominate global affairs so strongly at the end of the last millennia. So, for better or worse, the world we live in today was shaped by a small root vegetable from South America. So, the next time you ask your mate if you can have one of their chips, just think about the thousands and thousands of years of history that echo alongside its delicious crispy crunch. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the humble spud, and I do hope you enjoyed it. I learned so much about this vegetable. It's more or less the only vegetable that I eat, so I'm glad at least I'm armed with knowledge about this wonderful food, uh, the, the the potato. What, what a glorious thing it is indeed, and, and such an interesting and un, unexpectedly uh, powerful impact on, uh, on on history as well. So I do hope you enjoyed the, the story, and... Um, I do, do hope you enjoyed uh, exploring, again, a thing rather than uh, a person or, a, or an event. If you want more stuff like this, please let me know because I'd love to do it. I'd love to do other, other you know, inventions or, or important, important things that have, uh, you know, had a, had a big, uh, big impact on, on world history or the history of maybe a particular region or country. Uh, please let me know if you've got any ideas. Go to halfasshistory.net and uh, fill out the contact form there if you've, uh, if you've got some feedback or some ideas for a future episode. And uh, there you can also find links to subscribe to the show on iTunes or, or Android or on Spotify. Thanks to the people leaving me iTunes reviews. I appreciate all the positive feedback and I guess the negative feedback. It's nice. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, thanks for taking the time, I suppose. If you, uh, if you want to grab some Half House History swag, you can do so at halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. And uh, you can also support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash History. Uh, a range of different tiers, a range of different benefits that come with those tiers as well. So if you want to chuck us some dollar dues there, certainly would very much appreciate it. Of course, no obligation. I'm very grateful for the people who, who tune in every week. Uh, you know, whether you support or not, thanks so much for being part of the Half House History family. And, uh, and of course, telling your friends about the show. We are trying to get the good word of Half House History out there. So, uh, so please, if you can uh, if you can tell people about it. especially in you know, a time like this a lot of people at home a lot of people looking for things to entertain themselves and uh, learning about the potato uh, might be something that uh, you know people can uh, while away the hours with anyway that's enough of that going to uh, close out the episode as usual with a question posed on reddit this one is a science question here posed by reddit scientist the lord of bees who asks if a potato is 80 percent water and i am 70 percent water Am I 90% potato 